Fischerin. Yeah, when you're running down the beach and you need some food, you gotta run to the garden. When you're in never beach and you need some food, you gotta run check, check, to check, the check. garden. When you're looking for a treat, need something to eat. Say so what to call, cause this restaurant can't be beat. Best time loud. Hello from the past, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ryan Little. My name is Josh Michaels. And today on the Blue Hawaii Podcast, we're talking about uh, how wonderful it will be in just a little few short moments uh, as the Auburn Tigers take down the mighty, vaunted Virginia Cavaliers One in the Final Four NCAA you basketball tournament. For um, I am just assuming uh, the game tips off in about an hour and a half. Yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and assume that Auburn wins going away. You know, if folks, they don't, uh, this is probably our last podcast because I probably jumped off a bridge somewhere. Folks, by the time you're listening to this, the Auburn Tigers might be the NCAA men's college basketball national champions. Or I might be in a crippling depression that well, lasts for the rest of my life. There's only one way to find out. Stay tuned. Yeah. We often hear Holly meaning white person in a negative connotation, but is a perfectly good word. It means foreign introduced of foreign origin or foreign introduction. So in Hawaiian, anyone or anything that is not native to Hawaii is Haole. I'm Leilani Poli Ahu. Ahui Ho. Haole. is a perfectly good word. Welcome to the Blue Hawaii Podcast. I'm Ryan Little. I'm Josh Michaels. And folks, we have a wonderful show for you today. Um, as we mentioned, Auburn is probably now the NCAA basketball team. Bruce Pearl. National champion. If we were British, he would if be... If they're not, lie to me. If we were British, he would be a candidate for knighthood. He would be Sir Bruce Pearl. I take it back. I'm actually probably not going to watch the game. Just assume that they won. Yeah. And then that way I never have to be sad again for the rest of my so life. So congratulations to uh, Auburn or Virginia or Michigan State or Texas Tech. One of probably the, Auburn. But probably... Maybe Auburn. Josh, what did we do this week? Well, we had an amazing, 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 amazing fun week. The My highlight, well, we had two highlights. First big highlight, uh, we want to send a little shout out to a friend of the show from episode 35, Hawaii Delilah. That's at Hawaii Delilah on, on Twitter. Twitter. She was in town this week. Uh, we got together. We got to commiserate on the awful state of the world and hatch a plot for some exciting new content that the three of us are going to bring to you as the 2020 race starts to heat up. Shout out to Bar Leather Apron downtown and Bethel Union. Uh, we went there Tuesday night. Tuesday night. Both those places. Uh, did not realize Bethel Union, not a real union. Oh, you can't join it. No. Uh, but you can give it money. Yes. In exchange for something valuable. Delicious Italian food. Oh my God. Delicious so Italian American food. I told it's you not, the place yeah. is delicious. Oh, good. also, if you want to listen to Hawaii Delilah's episode. 35. So episode 35. Yeah. Go back and take a look at it. That's a good one. She's awesome. Uh, we like her. You'll like her too. And the other big highlight we had this week, we want to send a little shout out to Hawaii Public Radio. We were privileged enough to join them Friday morning 
to answer phones uh, during uh, it's the annual. It's time for the annual pledge drive, folks. Semi annual. They need your money. Semi annual. I think they do the them twice a year. Public now. radio, PB. They're always asking for money, but it's they need worth it. it. They need it, folks. If they didn't need it, they wouldn't ask. Yeah. Uh, if we don't support public radio and public media, all we're gonna have is state-run Fox News TV. We're gonna be left with like one day before we know it, we're gonna be left with Rupert Murdoch single-handedly controlling everything. So in Rush freaking Limbaugh, oh, yeah. who's still somehow a thing. So speaking of, you know, you know, usually we do a little news report. Usually we we give you the rundown. We give you the greatest hits. Uh, this week we're gonna talk about one main article that just pissed us off. We, <laughs> We uh so it was it ran in the Atlantic. It's an opinion piece, but the it, Atlantic, the Atlantic, which is you know a centrist, you know center right center. They bring center, excuse me a center left magazine that brings in center right voices occasionally. And I feel like it's moving further to the right. Maybe uh, I'm wrong. You know, uh, in in the interest, you know, DC establishment journalism, the it's still center left, right? And no, no, but like rather than you know. They're they're always going to benefit more from nom- bringing in nominally, especially quote unquote never Trump conservatives, you know, and maintaining yeah, their so. their friendship on the DC cocktail circuit. I do also worry though that like yeah. the Trump presidency is moving the Overton window back to the right. Oh, every day, every day. But also, you know, bubble my, bubble right wing media will do that too. But so this this opinion piece uh, gave us about sixteen different things to talk about. Uh, the gentleman, a gentleman named Peter Wenner, and we're just going to talk about a few, by the way, not yeah. all sixteen. Uh, he wrote. This is the this is his piece in the Atlantic. Peter Weiner, that we said. Uh, Weiner, I think. W e h n e r. Weiner, Weiner. Well, oh, he was a real Weiner in this oh, piece. Oh, a Weiner. Uh, the Democratic Party is radicalizing. Extremism isn't just affecting the GOP. Now, I'm sure this man has credentials that are Im- unimpeachable. And Sterling, he is the senior fellow at a Coke-funded think tank. <gasps> what? Uh, the uh, ethics and public the ethics and public policy center in Washington D.C. Here is from their uh, this is from their about page on their website. I'm mm-hmm. going to read the about, and Ryan is going to translate for what okay. I'm saying. He's going to be my he's going to be my interpreter here. Founded in 1976 by Dr. Ernest W. Lefevre, the Ethics and Public Policy Center is Washington D.C.'s premier institute dedicated to applying the Judeo-Christian moral tradition to critical issues of public policy. What that means is. Shortly after segregation became not a cool thing to talk about anymore, an old white guy came up with a way to make segregation the official policy of the United States. From the Cold War to the war on terrorism, from disputes over the role of religion in public life to battles over the nature of the family, EPPC and its scholars have consistently sought to defend and promote our nation's founding principles. Respect for the inherent dignity of the human person, individual freedom and responsibility, justice, the rule of law, and limited government. We made your grandparents scared until they were senile and slowly slipped away into delusions. Here's Mr. Werner's biography from the same site. Peter Werner is senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and contributing editor for the Atlantic Magazine. Mr. Werner has written for numerous other publications, including Time, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Financial Times, Weekly Standard, National Review, Commentary, National Affairs, Christianity Today. He's also appeared frequently as a commentator on MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, CBS, PBS, and C-SPAN Television. Mr. Wenner served in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations, ding, 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 prior to becoming Deputy Director of Speechwriting for President George W. Bush. In 2002, he was asked to head the Office of Strategic Initiatives, where he generated policy ideas, reached out to public intellectuals, published op-eds and essays, and provided counsel on a range of domestic and international issues during the George W. Bush administration. To translate... As we've proved time and time again, cough, cough, Ben Shapiro, it's really easy 
to have a huge platform if you have the smallest modicum of talent and people with unlimited money funding your every move. No, no, no. Before we pick Mr. Werner's argument apart line by line, in fairness to him, let's note that he has articulated many good, thoughtful rebukes of Donald Trump. But that's such a, that's a low such bar. a low, a low baseline. Whether you know whether Trump goes in 2020 or 2024 or 2090, and he's turned into a cyborg, and somehow he's lived <laughs> forever. Folks, best cyborg, no puppet, you puppet. I have the uh, worst robots. We're still going. We're still going to have a remarkable ideological divide that we're going to have to bridge in this country. Uh, Mr. Werner, you know, so here goes. Uh, he even put his thoughts in bullet format so that we can easily follow along. He writes, quote, to more fully grasp the leftward lurch of the Democratic Party, it's useful to run through some of the ideas that are now being seriously talked about and embraced by leading members of the party. Ideas that together would be fiscally ruinous, invest massive and unwarranted trust in central planners, and weaken America's security. Which because is translating for, uh, it's going to really mess up the establishment status quo shit that we've been working to break and destroy for... I feel like establishment status quo is just like code switching for just... What he really wants to say is, I I'm get a lot of money from billionaires and a, they do not like these ideas. The, can we keep these billionaires happy, please? My oil billionaire benefactors don't like as we're trying to transition away from oil. All right, Ryan, what do you say about the Green New Deal? Quote, the Green New Deal, a 10-year effort to eliminate fossil fuels as much as technologically feasible, would completely transform the American economy, put the federal government in partial or complete control over large sectors, and retrofit every building in America. Basically, what he's saying is, don't take all the billionaire stuff that they like. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Ibrahim, at Dr. Ibram on Twitter, Ibram X. Kendi, notes, conservatives deplore the, quote, colossal price tag of, of progressive policies, but they don't mind the colossal price tag of America's wars, prisons, and tax cuts for the rich. Conservatives want us to spend money on what they value, now what, and what they value is not us. Can I tell you something about yeah. conservatives and, uh, as we're talking about prison industry? Yeah. Uh, on my most recent flight back to Honolulu, I saw a guy wearing uh, a core civic jacket. Oh, yeah. Core civic, uh, excuse me, core formerly, civic. Formerly, formerly Corporations Correction of America. And which literally had to change their name after uh, the documentary 13 came yeah. out, uh, which is about how basically private prisons are modern slavery. Bingo. Um, and I've never wanted to randomly hit someone yeah. in public, but you know, he's probably just doing his job. He's probably, yeah. but then it came out when I'm, when I landed, I was listening to NPR the next day or HPR the next day. And they were saying that, uh, Ige is in talks to house yeah. more Hawaii prisoners in more private yep. prisons. We'll get to this, but, uh, it's almost as if putting your picket, pegging your criminal justice system to the concepts of supply and demand is inherently immoral. Oh, I'll tell you, our criminal um, justice yeah. system has been pegged. All right. So, you know, and the thing too, about the, you know, the green new deal centralization of power, blah, 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 blah. We already have centralization of power, folks. It's just that it's not designed to work for us. It's not designed to work for ordinary Americans. It's designed to work for folks like Jeff Bezos, Rupert Murdoch, Donald Trump, Betsy DeVos, ExxonMobil, Robert Mercer, Sheldon Adelson, The Waltons, Les Moonves, K Street, Lockheed Raytheon, Raytheon Northrop Grumman. Those, those folks have centralized power right now. And they love it. It's great. The question is not whether you support socialism, guys. It's to what degree. Because if you like the military, you like socialism. If you like... like fire department. Fire department. That's roads. socialism. If you like the fact that uh, we can give tax credits to corporations to incentivize them to relocate to places, then you like socialism. Did you see the guy, Pete, Pete Hegseth, the meathead on Fox News uh, that, that Donald Trump uh, almost nominated to be Secretary of the Veterans Affairs Department? Yeah. He said... Oh, veterans who take their VA benefits from the government—they don't have any integrity. They're relying on government handouts. Classic. Like, if the V, if veterans are not 
allowed, quote unquote, allowed to take their VA benefits, then what is the point of anything? Uh, so yeah, what a, what a what a dumb. Speaking of veteran benefits, yeah, President Trump said that Americans quote love their private health insurance. Which brings us to Mr. Werner's next point. He says about Medicare for all, uh, some versions would wipe out the health insurance the health insurance industry and do away with employer sponsored health plans that now cover roughly 175 million Americans. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Uh, you know well. Like Donald Trump said, Americans love their private health insurance. You know, personally, I don't want my insulin unless I can make sure some executive gets his fat cut first. Like, right? the, what? If the free market is not working, who's it working for? Uh, his next point, he uh, Democrats want to make college tuition free and debt free. Debt free? What? Oh my God. It would also, this could also have a potentially devastating effect on many private not-for-profit colleges. Well, you know, when Mr. Werner and... Private not-for-profit colleges, when Mr. like w- Trump University. Yeah, when Mr. Werner and our parents went to college, you could work one summer part-time job and save enough tuition money for the whole year. This uh, shit drives me changed. crazy. There should be, you know, there needs to be at least, you know... I love how it's like, okay, tuition-free, I, I get, you know, uh, for instance, you sent me an article this week. Pete Buttigieg says he doesn't think that college should be tuition free. I think there's logical, reasonable right. positions where you should say, yes, maybe college should not all be tuition free. There should but be, like, yeah, there should be a free or practically free option sure, for every, a public option. But at the option. same time, like, yeah. I'm fine with it being not tuition free if you just kick it back to how it was when you could work yeah. at McDonald's for a summer we'll, part time we'll and then trade, pay your tuition for the year. We'll even trade you, you know, reasonable cost controls. More robust loan forgiveness and free community college trade school, yeah. In the same way as the public, the public edu- as continuing the public education system, you know, maybe if we tried actually investing in our young people instead of making money off of them for Betsy DeBoss, you know, like we used to do, uh, as we talked, as you mentioned with the private prisons, education, and healthcare, we we're talking about all these things. The the point it all boils down to, leaving it up to free market profiteering, healthcare, education, criminal justice, one totally ineffective. For the vast majority of the American population, great for great, great, great for CEOs, uh, totally ineffective. Also, completely immoral. Do you ever wonder why we have the most, not the best, the most expensive healthcare system in the world? We don't have the best results. We don't have the best results. We have the most expensive healthcare. We don't have the best prison systems. We incarcerate the most people. We don't have the best prison systems. Did you see the thing uh, Bernie was talking about in Finland? You know where they have a much lower, more infant mortality rate than us. And the costs of 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 childbirth of of, admi- of admitting like fifty a, bucks is is ridiculously cheap. Nikki Haley hops on Twitter, former you know former UN right wing right wing demagogue hops. On, well, Bernie, if you want to like shortchange our women, if that's what the left wants to do, you know, I'd rather spend the big bucks. Like, what a fundamental misunderstanding and just like a gross, cruel misplacement of it's our priorities. It's not a misunderstanding. It's, it's totally it's, not. It's an intentional misrepresentation. Okay, then in that because, case, in that case, which makes it the, way more insidious. The, you're right. The people who buy Nikki Haley's like, you're right. She's right. I want to spend top dollar. I feel bad for those people. Those people are clowns. So I want to, uh, I have a, I have a friend who yeah. recently uh, experienced a very uh, tragic loss mm-hmm. of a family member in Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. This person died very suddenly and uh, required acute medical attention uh, for a period of days, including an ICU stay. And I, and I, I want to, make sure I get the number right. So I'm, but I'm, don't quote me on this, but it was a multiple of this number, if not the number exactly. For an ambulance ride, for a multi-day stay with acute care, they got a bill back, $5. Oh my God. $5. Like, 
and just like it's it's almost like the hospital's like, well, you should probably pay something, but yeah, like I don't want to. Like yeah. it's unbelievable. The I think the funeral apparently uh, this country has does like can do like state sponsored funerals or yeah. something like that. It was thirty bucks. Well, it's almost as if like if you engineer a system in which like you actually like make good use of people's tax money as opposed to just giving it away to the wealthy. I don't know. It's it's disgusting uh, how bad he we're goes on. He goes, I don't want to get into detail about this one. He's ranting about you know tax or he's not. He's he's opining about the dangers of you know oh socialist regressive taxes, higher taxes for the rich. Blah 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 blah. No, blah. no it's not just about it's not just about undoing the the Donald Trump GOT tax scam, which we need to undo. We've been hemorrhaging our money. Ever for, since Reagan, for, yeah, for to pamper and prop up our aristocratic oligarchy, absolutely We've been funneling everything up to them, and we gotta, we gotta stop it. We gotta undo that damage. What sucks is if, if you really think about it, like you think about what precipitated Reagan's rise to power, like yeah. stagflation and the oil crisis, yeah. like so much of that was probably, was probably the res- the fault. I would love, I would love somebody, academics, if you're listening, please do a research paper on this and send it to me on how the same people who are profiteering off of disaster capitalism, off of where we are now, those, those same Coke brother yeah. oil billionaires, what role they themselves oh, played yeah. in the stagflation and oil crisis that yeah. led to Reagan's election. And because this- as we've talked about before, the machinery that elected Reagan was existing and in place long before Reagan's name was ever uttered as a presidential like possibility. And this going into our next point, you know, you want to talk about in the, the, the period leading up to Reagan, uh, our adventures throughout the Latin American world, destabilizing the shit out of all the politics, out of every political system, every economic system. Why do you think we have all those refugees running up here now fleeing that violence? He goes on, Democrats want to abolish the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. You're GD which, right, Which upholds immigration laws, protects sanctuary cities that don't cooperate with federal efforts. And, and these policies signal that Democrats don't really believe in border security and are mostly untroubled by illegal immigration. No, fuck ICE. ICE is not about, quote, border security. ICE is the fucking um, Gestapo, The bro. wall is not about, quote, border security. ICE is, you're right, patri- it was created by the, it's not in this immutable, like, thing that we've had ever since the beginning of America. No. It was created by the Patriot Act, which we all agree is a disaster. The wall is nothing more than a monument to white supremacy. It has nothing to do with actual... No. No. Uh, countless families have been ripped apart. The government is literally abducting children. 28 women have miscarried in ICE custody. Thousands of military veterans have been deported. You can have secure borders and fulfill your obligations to refugees and migrants under international law without becoming a white nationalist terror gang. And that's the sort of sensible policy that we'd like to enact instead. Let's move on to another slightly less sensitive topic. Reparations. Uh, Mr. Wiener says... Uh, reparations for African Americans to provide compensation for past injustices like slavery, Jim Crow laws, and redlining uh, would pose countless practical problems and create unintended consequences. This is totally Maybe that's something that we should have considered before we enslaved African Americans yeah. and then completely screwed them at every great, point post slavery. It's, it's a great way to shut down the debate. It's like, oh, it's just about writing a check. Who's going to write the check? I don't know. This is not about writing a check. This is about reckoning with our past. Reparate, you know, if you actually engaged honestly and in good faith on the issue if you read you know ta-nehisi coates case for oppressions he doesn't say nobody's writing a check these are about reckon like these are it's systemic it's undoing the systems that that in many cases uh have been put in place you know and not just since oh fall of slavery walked away everything's fine deliberate policies have been in place all over this country to exclude and disenfranchise black americans and not just not just slavery not just in the 20s and 30s with jim crow up to the 80s and 90s, you know, war on drugs. Dude, I... Voter suppression that's going on right now in North Carolina and I all over the South. I was skeptical about reparations until I read Coates' article. Yeah. Uh, 
specifically the part about redlining. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it before, but like, I, I, I can't remember the precise numbers, but it's like, there's, you know, generationally home ownership has been the greatest, uh, driver of wealth in the United States. And, uh, Black people were systematically uh, systematically had their homes devalued by failing to provide bank loans, by uh, putting them in places near like uh, landfills and dumps, by not policing the neighborhoods, yeah. and it, it led to the point where I think last year there was something came. I want to say it was maybe in the Atlantic that was showing like the average median wealth of a white household's like forty grand, and then the average median wealth of a black household's like you know, $98 or something like that. I mean, it's the disparity is Nelson Mandela said poverty is not, not a natural occurrence. It's man-made. It's very, the result of very deliberate policies. It can be undone. That's socialism. It's absolutely socialism. Uh, Warner warns Democrats want to eliminate the Senate filibuster, pack the courts and put an end to the electoral college. McConnell did all that. The effect of these would be to weaken protections against abuses of majority power. Let's ignore the fact that Warner worked for the last president before Trump who didn't win the popular vote. What about, you know, majority power? What about the abuse of minority power? Why should Iowa be the center of American political life? Why are we still pretending the Supreme Court is independent and nonpartisan? By the way, headline from Washington Post piece this weekend, Mitch McConnell undid 213 years of Senate history in 33 minutes. This is just deflecting. This is deflecting, deflecting, deflecting. It's all bullcrap. Um... He goes on about Democrats are the party of late-term abortions and infanticide, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, infanticide is completely illegal. Uh, this is just red meat for the nutsos. Moving on. He says, increasing antipathy aimed at Israel, one of the most estimable nations in the world. Uh, estimable. Maybe, maybe before 1967. Uh, two freshman Democrats, Representatives Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, have embraced the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement targeting Israel, and House Democratic leaders faced a fierce backlash in their efforts to condemn the anti-Semitic remarks. They weren't anti-Semitic, they were anti-Israel, but they weren't anti-Semitic. Uh, who has a record of blah, 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 and mostly recently accused supporters of Israel of dual loyalties. Uh, dual loyalties, Donald Trump is literally at, on stage in front of the Republican Jewish coalition right, right now. This right this moment. Saying things as like, we're recording things, this. Saying, things, saying like, I appointed David Friedman as your ambassador. You know? Uh, like some of your people and many of your people when discussing businesses and tariffs. Apparently, Jews somehow have a special interest in this. I don't know. You know, I don't want your money, he said. You feel uh, especially wound up about Israel today. Is there any reason? It's just, well, the election The election is on April 9th. And uh, the, you know how we can sort of like hold two thoughts in our head at once uh-huh. as humans, but we lose the ability to do that whenever we go onto the national political stage. Uh-huh. I wonder why, and you know, we've we've listeners, we've talked about this a million times before. We don't need to go over all the Ilhan Omar stuff again, but uh, this is all one-way traffic that very irresponsibly uses the real threat of anti-Semitism for political point scoring. You can't solve a problem like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict without honestly reckoning with all the elements. There's an enormous double standard. Just this week, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, who will know by the time this comes out if he's been re- reelected or not, so dial this up, dial the level of urgency up by about a million if he's been reelected. He took Jair Bolsonaro, you know, the controversial right wing Brazil proto fascist, took him to Yad Vashem, the Israeli Holocaust Memorial. Bolsonaro claimed there was no doubt that the Nazis were leftists. No doubt, bro. No doubt. The Israeli prime minister did not do anything. Uh, he is actively fostering Holocaust revisionism, which, you know, and Bibi himself has done that too. So don't don't get on your friggin' soapbox and and like cry these crocodile tears about how Democrats are so anti-Semitic when, you know, what was the thing about 
uh, the, the spear in your eye or some shit. You're talking about the, the biblical the thing? Bib- What's the... Uh, don't point out the speck of dust in yes, your, of dust, in your neighbor's in the- eye when you have a plank in your own. Yeah. Uh, Mr. G- Mr. Wiener concludes... Uh, that was him that said it, yes. Did you? Were you quoting him? Jesus Christ or Peter Wiener? Jesus Christ. Because uh, uh, you, you said it right after. It just, it I just fit really I well. Just, that's, that's the, yeah, well, I'm quoting. I meant to quote Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're name-checking him. No. Like, who shout said out, that? Shout Jesus. Out, shout out to Jace. Speaking of speaking of controversial issues in the West Bank, uh, Jesus' birthplace. Hey. Yeah. Mr. Wiener concludes, Democrats want to focus their attention on the flaws and corruptions of Donald Trump. Yes. Yes, we do. And they have a lot to work with. But you won't become a saint through other people's sins, Anton Chekhov said. That's and the Democratic quote. Party will not become a responsible governing party because of the faults of Donald Trump. Yeah, it's. I think it's the morality thing is what makes them a responsible he's, governing party. He's 100% correct on, we're not going to, yeah, but for the party of, you know, family values, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it's a good Chekhov quote. It's a good Chekhov quote. I like Here's that. what he says. Progressivism is wrecking the Democratic Party. Even as crude populism and ethnic nationalism have, for now, wrecked the Republican Party. I love how the Democratic Party's is like fatal and it's never going to recover. And Republicans then, for now. And then the Republican, yeah, for now. For now. We'll, we'll get our Reagan, legs back H-W-W, on this. HWW, yeah. Both are salvageable and both are worth saving. You didn't imply that. But that will require individuals who have identified with each party to fight to reclaim them, to show wisdom, decency, and courage in an age of extremism and intemperance. I'm, like the wisdom... And it, and decency and courage that uh, your former boss showed when he bombed the shit out of Iraqi civilians yeah. and put us in a forever war so that his buddies could have yeah. oil rights. So the guy who definitely to sovereign oil, the guy who definitely doesn't want Republicans to stay in power and definitely doesn't want re- Democrats to keep losing, he thinks the answer is toothless establishment centrism and the status quo. Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, who. How many, t- like, what do they say? Circa 2012, what were they saying about Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden? Oh, yeah, yeah, Pearl like, Clutch. It's like, you know, what, I, what you can condense it all down to is David and Charles Koch yeah. told me that I should write an op-ed yeah. showing that centrism is good yeah. and to please not challenge them. If if you think this is radical, then you're, you're, you're GD right. I got you, you to say it. You're. You're GD right. We're radicalizing. See, that's the most. That's the most like milked. Yeah, you're GD right. We're you're, radicalizing. <laughs> you're you're goddamn right. Is yeah, that better? That's right. You're goddamn right. We're it radic- sounds better. It sounds more forceful. You're, you're gosh darn right. <laughs> you're golly well, gee. So hopefully not just in the USA we're radicalizing, but so three of the last four presidents, Clinton, Bush, Trump, you know, not Obama, obviously, were all born in 1946, and they all sucked. The, uh, I'm just kidding. Clinton the boomers, was pretty good. They've, they've sucked increasingly more as we go along that's true the boomers are aging alongside the presidents they've been voting for you know what i mean like as they keep getting older and decrepit they we want get more, more old older decrepit and decrepit. people yeah. yeah we've had enough our generation took the brunt of the 2008 financial crisis the brunt is a nice way of saying we got reamed we took the brunt of serving mostly of serving in our two dumb post 9-11 forever wars overwhelmingly our generation was the one that got screwed the and by screwed we mean uh, crippled with ptsd and anxiety disorders but remember no pete pete hegseth says anybody who takes the va benefits doesn't have any self-respect anyway fuck pete hegseth uh we're also (laughs) we're also going to be the probably going to be the first generation in american history to have a lower standard of living and make less money than our parents and also not outlive them. And also, by the way... We are pissed. Yeah. We are fucking pissed. And like, we think that 
we should probably try to change some of that. Yeah, and I love how it's like, oh, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it. No, it's Because we're, we're in the twilight of our lives, and we need things to be easy, because I'll tell you what was hard for us, was having essentially free college, uh, reliable raises, and great wage uh, growth over yep. our entire career, yep. uh, being able to afford everything we'd ever need, yep. cheap health care, yep. and a very safe, prosperous country. Well, you know... That we, was hard for we us. Say it, we so say make it, sure it's easy now. We say it all the time. We say it all the time. Um, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And what we need to do is, one, we need to restore the basic American social contract that Peter Weiner's bosses, Wiener. Peter Weiner's bosses, have been shredding since seventies and eighties. And two, eat the rich. <laughs> three, okay, three points. No, and two, break out the guillotine. We need to open up that American social contract to all the people. The you know, to the point about equality feels like oppression. To all the people who, for the past 400 years, have been excluded from that contract. Folks like me and Ryan, we've been doing okay. I've been doing all right. Yeah. But... And I'm still struggling. Yeah. And the, the fact that, you know, the Cokes, and to be fair, you know, when, you're, when your budget and your bottom line depends on you solidly committing to this fact and refusing to acknowledge any other options, you get, like... You get why people are writing these epi- writing these essays. I saw today that uh, just to give a scale measurement of how much outsized influence these sort of faceless billionaire monoliths have. Um, Too much. GE contributed $26 million to congressional Republicans post-2016 to get them to pass that GOP tax scam. Their estimated savings, $21 billion. Yeah, that's a good investment. To give you, just remember, guys, a thousand millions makes one billion. Yeah. They spent twenty-five million, and then they got twenty thousand millions back. Can you? Imagine, that's a pretty good ROI. Can you imagine what it would be like if our representatives like cared about us and ordinary folks instead of the GE lobbyists and like what? How much check? How many checks the GE lobbyists can write? Let's uh, before we get to our wonderful interview with Mr. Mike Poor, who I he, think you're all gonna love. Great, it was a, it's gonna take. It's gonna be in a much. It'll cheer us up. I just want Josh to really quickly yeah. read uh, a quote from Bernie Sanders' uh, most yeah. recent speech at Westminster. This is, well, it's not. It's not. Uh, you know, this and this is not just a. This is not just an America thing. As America, you know, under Donald Trump, as we beat the drum of retreat, isolationism, right-wing populism, you know, fascial corporatocracy, uh, Bernie said it best. In his own voice. in In his own. This planet will not be secure or peaceful when so few have so much and so many have so little. And when we advance day after day into an oligarchic form of society where a small number of extraordinarily powerful special interests exert enormous influence, enormous influence over the economic and political life of the world. Inequality, corruption, oligarchy, and authoritarianism are inseparable. And he's right. We'll be back in a minute. That's where the world is kind of falling apart. We'll be back in a minute. Blue Hawaii Podcast. Blue Hawaii. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Blue Hawaii Podcast. Our guest this morning, joining us live via the internet from beautiful Indiana, is author... Crown Point, Indiana. Crown Point, Indiana. The Honolulu of the, the Midwest, as the it's Honolulu called. The Honolulu of the uh, Midwest, that's how about right. That per- how about that Purdue <laughs> basketball team? They were good. Uh, our guest, author, wordsmith, visionary, Michael Poor. His latest novel, Reincarnation Blues, was named one of National Public Radio's Great Reads of 2017. 
You can visit him at michaelpoor.live and follow him on Twitter at mikepoor227. Mr. Poor, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. It's a, good, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. I, I wish we were doing this uh, in Hawaii. That would be so awesome. Oh, how's the weather over there? Uh, it's nice. It's uh, 65 and uh, and only partly cloudy today. This is like the oh, first good, day yeah. it hasn't so felt like winter. So climate change affecting you guys too. Oh, it's, it's, doing, <laughs> it's doing something to us. I tell you, I it, know, uh, yeah. when it's 65 and partly cloudy, people line up outside the Walmart to buy tube socks. To buy yeah. tube socks and coats yeah. and, uh, and stuff like that, yeah. It was yeah, so. 65 with a breeze for about three weeks, and I wore a flannel every single day. Cause yeah, today everybody's out in their, in their shorts and T-shirts and stuff like <laughs> Like uh, that, you know, people are getting their kiddie pools out, and yeah, oh my awesome. gosh. Um, well, Mike, uh, I read this book. I, I, I told Josh I could not stop talking about it. I, gush, I picked it up. Gush, 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 uh, gush. I picked it up right before I went to Japan for a snowboarding trip. I had a long flight; it was like nine hours from here to Japan, and I just googled, you know, best books and of 2018, 2017, something like that. And uh, a review from NPR came up and I picked it up. I freaking loved it. I told everybody I know about it. Um, and I just wanna, if I can start off with the review from NPR, um, which honestly is what got me hooked. I, I, um, I love that review too, sure, yeah. Yeah, so just for those of you at home, um, Reincarnation Blues very loosely is about um, a gentleman named Milo, and the, the premise of the book is that you have 10,000 chances in life to achieve perfection, and Milo is on uh, chance 9,995. He's got five chances left, and so it sort of chronicles um, his past lives and different uh, fits and starts and shows you what it's like to have lived that many times. Um, let me read this quote from NPR. For a book that is all about death and dying, for a book which counts among its main characters an actual embodiment of death named Susie, Michael Poore's Reincarnation Blues is surprisingly goofy. And I mean that in a sweet way, the hard way, because goofy isn't easy to pull off in a serious book. But Poore does it brilliantly. It is a story of 10,000 deaths, some good, most bad, and it begins like this. This is a story about a wise man named Milo. It begins on the day he was eaten by a shark. <laughs> what was your inspiration here? Um... I had uh, I had some uh, relatives who uh, back in the day um, were eaten by sharks. They were not eaten by sharks. They were, uh, but they they had a really good time. They were in bands and stuff, and did a lot of basically did a lot of drugs. And speaking, uh, and, that's a, we'll and, get to that in a second. Okay. And then they uh, well then they they quit uh, and and you, and you, they were sober and clean and everything for years and years and years, but they still died young. And, uh, I had, uh, I mean, just, you know, they'd beaten themselves up to that, to that point. And so, uh, I just had this idea of writing a book about this couple who were looking for a creative way to, to die. And somewhere in there, I had an idea for having, you know, death itself would be a character in the book. Maybe they would talk to death at the end. And then somewhere it just grew into a, a book about, uh, actually passing through death to whatever came on the other side. And then uh, it turned into a book about reincarnation. So, so uh, as you, as you're talking about, as you're alluding to death plays a, a very prominent role and I, and that's a bit of a double entendre. Uh, number one, the theme of the book is life, which inherently has right. to do with death. Uh, but then also death is literally personified in a character named Susie, who Milo is in love with and it creates this wonderful tension um, it was a little punk rock, man. It was, it was I, like, you know, that, these, that this, I like, hadn't heard before, love. but okay. You, you mean the character of Susie was kind of, kind of punkish or, well, Susie and <laughs> Susie and Milo together. I mean, it's, it's just like, yeah, you know what? 
I'm in love with death. And like he Death's hot. Like he who like, cares? He like kinda loves dying and then you've got the entire universe is like telling him, No, you need to go back and do this thing and he's like, Screw right. the universe. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. It just I don't know. It felt a little it felt a little punk rock. So that was that was kind of his whole thing throughout, you know, throughout the whole book was that, you know, they were like, oh, you're going to reach perfection and you're going to go up and become one with the universe. He's like, why would I want to become one with the universe? It like, doesn't, I'm I mean, freaking can you, happy can right now. Can you drink now. beer and eat pizza and go fishing and, <laughs> and yeah. you know, and have sex and stuff like that? You know, being one with the universe sounds really boring. And you're like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. And he's like, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think so. So hopefully that attitude carried through a little bit. I think so. Yeah. Well, one of the themes, um, reincarnation, and it's sort of alluded to and and hit on the nose a couple of times, uh, but there's some pretty overtly Buddhist themes. Do you consider yourself a Buddhist? Uh, I suppose so. I I, I wouldn't really put a a name to to whatever I am. Originally, when I sent the book to uh, my agent, it had a lot more religious stuff in it. uh, A lot of it was Hindu. There were actual Hindu gods involved and everything. And uh, she kind of recommended that, you know, if we back off on that, it'll be more universal. And I, you know, I said, yeah, yeah, Mm. you're you're, uh, you're right. But uh, no, there's no there's no real name for it. I, I grew up going to lutheran sunday school at the first lutheran church in troy ohio which is about as non-buddhist as you can as you can get but <laughs> uh, but i but i like some of those some of those themes like the one about the wave where uh, you know when you die you're like a wave that's going to come up somewhere else in the river and stuff like that so it was it was really cool yeah so npr uh you know talking about milo's you know his many lives uh and some of the, the broad different themes you're touching on in the book uh npr also says quote the best pieces of it are the shrapnel of Milo's other experiences, past lives and future ones, brief asides, stray memories, tiny glimpses into entire existences, sometimes winnowed down to a single sentence. Poor just throws them down like bright pennies on the sidewalk, a lifetime spent as a juggler who once lifted an elephant, another spent as a tree, a childhood spent fighting a losing battle against cancer. The ones that read like science fiction are the best and wildest of them. A hundred perfect words to describe a life that has enough in it to fill a novel all on its own. A page that might have been a trilogy of Hollywood blockbusters in someone else's hands. And Poor has dozens of them, each one like a short story buried in the pulp of something so much larger. So, one, how much did you pay this guy to write the review? And- uh- yeah, uh, but one of the publicists at uh, at Random House uh, got a hold of me that day. He's like, "You got to you got to read this review online." Yeah. And it was like, "I was like, is it on the radio?" He said, "No, but it's you know it's online pretty much everywhere." And I was I was so excited that was that was just that was uh, it was so damn nice of, uh, yeah. of 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 the author. I regret I can't remember his name right at the moment. It's a, a weakness that I uh, that I have. But yeah, that was, that was pretty it's cool. Okay. So. We we should have we should have stolen that for our notes. But we'll, uh, the we'll tag him. The we'll fo- tag him in the. Yeah. Yes. The follow-up, my follow-up question to that is, you know, all these different stories. Did you start off as a more a short story vignette guy, or have you always yeah. been an okay? Yeah, and some of my some of my favorite writers are people like uh, Kurt Vonnegut and Richard Brodigan, okay. whose writing does kind of come in, uh, in in shorter snippets and sometimes can be almost uh, cartoon like. Uh, yeah, actually, it's, when it's I was like in, you've got all these different ideas, yeah. Yeah, when I was in a writing program in college, actually, I wanted to be a poet for a while, and I was writing these little okay. short, terrible uh, poems and uh, and stuff. So, uh, yeah, that that was actually my favorite part as far as fun, uh, having fun writing the book was all those little uh, all those little snippets. I mean, and there were thousands of them too. I mean, you ought to see the see the stuff I threw away. Well, and so one of the things that I think captured my attention was the that format. So, I mean, we get to peek into 
10,000 potential lives over the entirety of human existence. So in essence, what it allowed you to do was write about any genre that you'd like. So you've got, you know, some like very like human interest, dialogue heavy bits where there's a lot of undertones. Then you've got some like literal science fiction. I mean, we go from the beginning, Milo's first life is a small Indian child in a remote village thousands of years ago. And then uh, we get to a point where thousands of years in the future, human cyborgs are forced to have breath holding contests in the vacuum of space. (laughs) Like you, you really ran the gamut here. How did you come up with that? Um, just, uh, there's a lot of the book that got left out. So there was a lot of trial and error. It, it wasn't anything like it. I just sat down and wrote it out and it all came through the first time. As a matter of fact, the, the first draft that I sent to my agent was really kind of dumb. Um, it, uh, it was, it was a lot different from the finished product. So there was a lot of going back and forth and trying out different things and everything. So, I mean, if it looks like it was easy on the page now, uh, it's just because it took a lot of hard work and it doesn't always, always work that way. But, uh, yeah, a lot of times it, it, it came down to just finding the most fun, most, you know, crazy or most morbid, uh, thing that, that I could find. And then, uh, my agent, Michelle Brower, I gotta give her a lot of credit. She would try to keep me on, on track. She'd saying, well, you need to think about what the point of this chapter is supposed to be. How exactly mm. is, uh, is he growing? And uh, sometimes there wouldn't be a point to it, and that's some of the stuff that that got left on the on the cutting room floor, as it as it were. But it was a crazy process that took a couple of years. Yeah, I, that's one of my next questions. You say a couple of years. I mean, are we? Yeah. How long was this process? Are we like three years, five years? What? Uh, I think it was three years. Uh, wow. I was I was on vacation, I think, in 2014 when I decided I needed an idea needed an idea for a new book. So I had one uh, finally after a couple of weeks on the road. Uh, and then uh, that's what I do when I drive. And then uh, I probably wrote it over the course of the next year and then spent the next two years uh, going back and going back and forth. And then that was before even uh, my uh, my editor, Trisha Narwani, got a hold of it. And uh, she's the one who said, you know, the parts where uh, where it talks about Susie, where you have Susie's backstory, like with the whale and when uh-huh. she lives in the in the Mexican fishing village and, yeah. and all that. Those were actually her idea. Uh, so wow. I mean, th- this oh. book, this book is an act of, of teamwork. Really, I, I have wonderful people that I work with. It's like the opposite of a publishing horror story. So uh, <laughs> she was the one who said, "Let's can we hear more about Susie?" And I was like, "Fuck yeah, we can hear more about Susie." Here's the <laughs> right thing. On. Here's the thing about uh, Saint Francis. She's like, "That's awesome." And so it, it was. It's been. It was a lot of fun working with them. When I when I got to that point in in the book with Susie uh, taking up in the Mexican fishing village, I was like, it felt like I it felt like water in the desert because literally all I wanted to know at that point was like, I want to know more about this character. And yeah, it was really exceptionally well-placed. Um, kudos to you on that, my friend. Uh, Josh it. had a really important question about yeah. inspiration. So, you know, and, and this is, this is a point, you know, uh, you mentioned it was, it was not an entirely solo effort. A lot of the really interesting ideas came from people on your team. Right. Um, but, but you kind of alluded to something that was in the back of my head. Uh, and you, <laughs> when you talked about uh, some of your relatives, this is, the, this is the first thing Josh said when he first, read the book. The first thing I said when I read the book is, how much acid does this guy do in college? <laughs> and you don't, have to, you don't actually have to, you don't have to answer that. You don't have to answer that. But um, t- I, I was in college for, uh, as an undergrad for 10 years. On, so a lot on of acid. I, well, I didn't say anything about acid <laughs> necessarily, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I, I had 10 years to make a lot of uh, choices. And I, Understood. I, I grew as a person and became more wise. Yeah. Yes, so. exceptional. Uh, so I think a, your, uh, your undergrad ten year program is 
uh, matched only by a friend of the show, Mike Dunford. Oh, yes. Between his law school and undergrad. I think it took him about 20, or law school to undergrad it took him about 20 years. Yeah. Is that right? Something like okay, that. Okay, that's okay um, if you got law school in there. If you got law school in there and you wind up with a law degree, he did get a law degree at the end of it, right? He, yes, yes, he did eventually, yeah. I think I think between right. master's and master's yeah. and undergrad took him yeah. 15 years. But he, he, also married, he also married a doctor, which helps. Yeah. All anyway. right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, so no, my fo- my follow up question. This was that- at Ohio University, by the way. I just wanted to I wanted to get oh, that okay. in there. I'm by far not the only person ever to go to OU for ten uh, for ten years. So <laughs> Sounds like a great school. That's the university that every year when they have spring forward and you uh, and you lose an hour at the bars, they riot and break windows on Court Street. So that's my <laughs> alma mater. <laughs> oh man, our college experiences were much different, and yours sounds a lot more fun. Yeah. So uh, in terms and in terms of these ideas in the writing process. Uh, you're, you're driving around. You've got your big idea. When it comes to all these different lives, all these different characters, and just keeping track of everything, everything on the, and how the story is going to go, yeah. are you a, I got to get everything down on paper and then sift through it as we go? Or are you like, you can keep it all up in your vision, you know, web up in your brain? Oh, uh, no, I've got to have notes all over the place. Like what, what I'm doing right now, it's a book about Captain Ahab before the events of Moby Dick. And it's oh, his, okay. it's his whole life that. from the time he's 10 years old until he, you know, dies. And uh, I've got one whole wall of our kitchen, which is like string, and I print out pictures uh, from the that's web, like, and like awesome. pictures of people wailing and, and stuff, and, uh, and and that's my timeline. If I need to know, you know, how old was he when the thing happened with the pig in the rowboat or, or whatever, I need to go look at that and say, oh, okay, he was 32 or, oh, or whatever. Oh, that's super interesting. So, yeah. yeah, otherwise I'm trying to keep track of like, you know, 60 years in my head. That would never work. You could ask any yeah. math teacher I ever, I ever <laughs> and well, And think about it with Reincarnation Blues, it was there was more than one timeline. And one of the decisions I had to make early on was what the – was I going to allow things to happen simultaneously? Like if he mm. lives a life in the 1970s, does that mean that I can't have him live any other time in the 19, 1970s? So I decided that it was possible for him to be living a life in Asia at one point and then also, you know, inhabit a life later on uh, somewhere else on the planet. So Okay. And this the Captain Ahab work, is that going to have the same sort of, uh, you know, your 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 humor, your irreverent style, or is it going to be, is it going to hem more toward straight Melville-esque? I feel like I know the answer to this ahead of time. I I hope so. It's going to be, it's going to be funny. It's going to be, it's going to be strange, but right now it's just this gigantic mess. Uh, There's so much more of it than could ever go in the book. It's longer than Moby Dick. uh, (laughs) Moby Dick is 218,000 words long my book is 360,000 words long and I'm not I won't be done for another few weeks okay any any when you when you do you have a rough ballpark of what you're trying to cut that down to for publishing usually it's going to have to be around 100,000 reincarnation blues has done has done okay sales wise was done well sales wise um so i can probably get away with a little more this time so uh, maybe 150,000 words so a half of it at least is going to have to go and and that's fine it'll it'll move faster i want it to read like a house on fire so you know at the at the same time i'm trying to put together like you know moby dick style melvillian language with something something that's that's more accessible so okay ah, Man, I'm worn out. I'm going to be worn out by the time that's done. <laughs> it's got to resonate with your fans as well as all the uh, like English graduate students out there. Right, right. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen with that because there are, 
uh, tons of people. I, I recently spoke with an expert at the Whaling Museum in New Bedford, who told me that there are people. He was a he was a British fellow, and he t- he called he called them nubbins. He said there are intellectual <laughs> nubbins out there who just won't <laughs> be able to wait to nail you. He said they live for this kind of kind uh, of. You should try so, hosting a political podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay, I have a question. Uh, you know, we we like to get to know our guests beyond, you know, just the one thing that they're spotlighted for. Uh, and you've been uh, a professional author now for better part of a decade, at least. Um, what were your, tell us some of your best and worst jobs you did prior to being a professional writer. Oh, I, I'm still doing one. I'm, I'm still a sixth grade teacher. And that's uh, the worst job. No, oh kidding. no, no, no! That's, uh, that's that's I've been doing it for twenty years. I've actually no been way at the same school Very for cool. uh, for over twenty years. So uh, yeah, I, there must be something to it. Teaching teaching middle school for uh, got to support our years. That's it, very it has, cool. It has aged me, but at the same yeah. time, man, there are there are kids out there that I you know I've. I got, I'll tell you a little story. I had a, a kid Please. come up to me, and he drove up in the parking lot a couple, couple of years ago and got out, and he's like, hey, old man. And it was this kid I had as a sixth grader a number of years ago. <laughs> and uh, he'd, 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 I had actually kept up with his family in the meantime, and he was like, uh, he was like, yeah, yeah, it's really good to see you and everything. I said, well, what are you doing? He said, I've got this great job driving a, uh, a tow truck for the city of, of Chicago. And he said, we have this, uh, we have this contract. We uh, go and get the cars when somebody gets shot shot in their car uh we're the one who goes and we uh and we tow the and we tow the car and he said what you, what they don't tell you is that for some reason they have to leave the body in the car until they get it to uh to the uh, impound what? yard so here i'll be in the middle of the night towing a car through chicago with the dead body in the back and he said he said gives you dreams mr poor <laughs> That is oh, the geez. wildest oh. thing I have ever heard. And I've got hundreds of kids that, that, that I'll catch up with from time to time with, you know, stories like that. So that's one of the benefits of being a teacher is they, they come back with stories about their lives and stuff like that. So that's super cool. So, so what I've, some, I've driven so. a forklift. I've driven a, I, I drove a, a country taxi cab one time. This was right oh. after, after college. I didn't want to go into teaching right away. I wanted more time for writing. Um, yeah. So I drove a country taxi cab, and uh, I accidentally helped a guy escape from jail one time. I was sitting by the, <laughs> yeah, I was sitting by the courthouse at like five o'clock in the morning, and I was half asleep. And all of a sudden, oh, this guy got in, and he's in his underwear. And he said, "I just got out of jail." It should have occurred to me to ask if they let him out of jail or whatever. But I drove him to his house. He went in the house. The door was all busted up for when they'd gone in and arrested him and everything. He came back out with whatever money. He owed me and gave it to me. And the next day, the next uh, night, one of the cops came out. And he's, he's like, you know, hey, uh, it, next time you, you should be more careful about who you pick up by the courthouse. They had to go back out and get that guy. So, oh my god! Wow. So, I didn't get so, in trouble for that, but that wow. was fun. Yeah. Um, so you know, you mentioned always knowing you wanted to be a writer, or knowing for a long time you wanted to be a writer. Yeah. What were some of the books you read that made you come to the realization, like, oh, I want to do this? You know, it's funny. I uh, I'm I'm at uh, I'm at a friend's house because we've got a, a writing group that meets every uh, every couple of weeks. And today I brought a copy of the very first book that I ever remember in my life. It's called Two Minute Bedtime Stories. And okay. uh, it's got my very first favorite uh, story, and it is called Dumpling the Cuddly Hedgehog. And it's about this hedgehog who runs away from home, and then he finds a home with these nice ladies who feed him apple dumplings. That's it. And that was my first favorite story, and it kind of made me want to tell tell stories. And then... After that, it was uh, we we had a we had a bunch of books on our shelves uh, 
called the Junior Classics that had everything in it from mythology to uh, a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens and stuff. Was so, it, I mean, was it the, the the abridged versions? Uh, some of it was abridged, and then yeah. and some of it was like fairy tales by you know classic writers like Charles yeah. Perrault and and people. I like remember that. those. So yeah. yeah. Awesome. Uh, and then, and then some of it too was like books that came out. Like in 1975, I was eight years old, and Jaws came out, and I wanted oh, to read. Yeah, I wanted to read cool. Jaws, and my parents finally let me read an abridged uh, version of that, and it's just got all this, you know, blood and gore and in, in it and everything. And uh, this is the best. Those are the th- It was. It was. The fish swam slowly through the water, and then there was blood and gore in the water, and the woman screamed. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, screamed. <laughs> you know? And I was, I'm drawing all these gory, horrible, bloody pictures and taking them to my mom. And I'm it's a wonder I didn't wind up with the psychiatrist. Uh, Jaws was a huge <laughs> oh. influence on me. It's, I can't even tell you. I mean, there's uh, a shark in the first page. Say the very first well, page yeah, has a shark. Yeah, and it, there still, it, is. it still it still shows up, and, it, and, it, and it's in it's in Ahab. It's in Ahab too. There we so, go. So that was a, that was a big influence, and then and then from there, uh, at one point, like I said, I discovered Kurt Vonnegut, and Vonnegut was always having so much fun with everything he wrote, and I was like, you can write this and have it be serious literature, and have people read it and say, oh, look at the ideas in that, but yet it's still so much fun, and that's kind of what got me seriously thinking about, like I, I think I'll devote some time and energy to trying to do this, and then nice. found out that of course it wasn't nearly as easy as he made it look. It wasn't easy oh, sure. at all, but. The great ones do make it look easy. Well, so yeah. I, if I, I read an interview or watched, excuse me, watched an interview uh, with you, it was an eight great questions interview, uh, and oh, you said yeah. that your f- favorite book was by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, right. And what I'm curious about is uh, the Ahab book will be your third novel, I believe. Correct. Right. Yeah. Uh, do all are you a well, Vonnegut it's, it's the style writer? Or been, the, it's the third one that's been published. I've got, I've go, got all go. kinds of stuff sitting around in, in drawers. Well, but so any, you were going to say, is is the Ahab book and and your other two novels? Do they all take place in the same universe as Vonnegut's do? Um, no, uh, no, it's pretty much a different different universe for each one. To be honest, mm-hmm. I never really gave that a whole lot of thought because I never intended to write anything as a as a serial. Uh, and, uh, and each one is kind of its own, its own separate commentary. Was it like, sure. you know, the first book was about, about the devil. And in, uh, I would have to say in Ahab's universe, there's not really an actual physical God and devil like there is uh-huh. in, in, in that book. So no, sure. that's a good question. And it's not, it's one I've never gotten. Wow. Hey, journalism. We pride ourselves <laughs> on asking good questions <laughs> what, so what and ad- a lot of bad ones. Yeah. What advice, uh, speaking of, speaking of bad questions. So what did you know? You mentioned it's not an easy, it's not an easy career, it's not an easy field to break into. What advice do you have for all the aspiring wordsmiths out there? Oh man, be ready for it to take twenty or thirty years. Uh, it, uh, that being said, there are lots of writers out there. For, well, maybe not lots, but there are writers out there for whom it is uh, easier. These are better writers uh, than I am, or or whatever. <laughs> uh, so sometimes it, it doesn't take that long. Plus today. Um, self-publishing is completely different from what it was. You don't have to wait for a huge gateway publisher like Random House to decide sure. that you're worth putting on, on paper. You can do it yourself and attract readers and become a, a, a meaningful artist without anybody having to give you permission. And I think that that's great. It's the, the democratization of art. Um, but uh, at the same time, if, if, if you do want to try to go with the more traditional publishing thing, yeah, it may it may take a while. I had to I, I wrote short stories for years and published them in journals. And 
eventually somebody somebody noticed one of my agent noticed one of my stories wow. because it was in a journal that a friend of hers had a had a story in. So I mean it was just That's awesome. kind of kind of coincidence. Well, uh this sort of brings us very nicely uh this vein of conversation into a couple of questions that we ask everybody and these are our hardest hitting questions. Yes. Um True so um rapid fire lightning round. I've written a book and in it you've become uh marooned on a desert island and on this desert island you can only take one book, one album and one movie with you. What are you taking? Oh wow. Okay, one book. Okay, I'm not a religious person, I'm not a churchgoer, but my book would be the Bible. It's, it's got funny you every... say that because that's normally my default answer for people who don't answer within 10 seconds. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I, it's hard to beat Shakespeare and the Bible for just the pure volume of storyhood in it. I mean, it's got every possible kind of story. It's got uh, it's got poetry. They're usually yeah. pretty durable. If you had to, like, kill small animals or stuff like that, you could beat them to death <laughs> with your Bible. Um, so, okay, so you said uh, a book, a movie. That was a very Douglas Adams answer. I, <laughs> like saying, like, I take a towel with me. You know what I mean? It's like, a towel is a very useful implement. And okay. Bibles. Bibles, they're so versatile. A lot of people yeah, don't very know Very practical. That. You can so, use yeah, it as uh, something to level out your... Yep. Palm frond couch. The divine and the secular. You can write in it if you have to. Like if you forget paper and you have your Bible, you could write in it. Good point. So Uh, uh, let's see. Okay. You said a movie. My current favorite movie is still Steve Zissou and the Life Aquatic, but I don't know okay. if that would be. Uh, I don't know if that would be it. I'd want to take something a little meatier, something that I could watch it would over and over. When you're surrounded by water, it would feel insensitive. I think it would get yeah. Yeah. Apollo thirteen. Okay. Oh, it's just so okay. damn much fun. Plus, maybe yeah. it would give me hope. Well, maybe I'll get rescued or something <laughs> like that. So that's kind of a lame, lame answer. I, I, I feel, though. but it would be. Uh, yeah. Oh, Castaway would be good. Uh, would be good too. Except I was always frustrated with that movie because it was like it kind of glossed over most of his time on the island. Yeah. And then it's well, like, then okay, now you're now you're left back left home where nothing is nothing happens. Yeah. yeah. So. But, and then so, what okay, about so, album? Oh, my album. Let's see. Uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall. Ooh, okay. I, I, I know Pink Floyd answers irritate a lot of people, but no, uh, I was born in 19, uh, 1967, and okay. uh, that was one of the reasons that it took me a while to get through uh, through college. I had a lot Summer of involvement of with Pink Floyd. No, uh, no so. comment as to inspiration sources <laughs> from earlier. Okay, and then so. uh, you mentioned that you were in Crown Point, Indiana, uh, the the crown jewel of Indiana. Yes. If if one of our listeners by chance finds himself traveling through Crown Point and they want to know what's the best restaurant in this place to try out. What do you recommend to them? The best restaurant. I don't eat in Crown Point uh, a whole lot. Okay. And the fact is that the, there's one steakhouse kind of place where I've been. I mean, it was really excellent. My, uh, my wife and I went there uh, for an anniversary one time uh, along with a guest and I can't remember the name of the place. Um, okay. So there's a little Greek restaurant called uh, the Seven. Is it Seven Seas or the Seven Oceans or something like that? Anyway, if you were in downtown Crown, uh, Crown Point, Indiana, you would you would see it. That uh, that, place, the, that place to, is good. Go 
go downtown and ask everybody, where's the Greek restaurant? And <laughs> right. you should be able to find it. And you okay. say, it's like, it's like seven something. And then they'll, they'll be like, uh, they'll be like that. And then they'll be Perfect. like, stop holding up traffic. Cause it's weird. <laughs> you know? so, but uh, oh. aside from, uh, from restaurants, uh, also near the square is the courthouse that John Dellinger escaped from when he, oh, uh, no when he held up the guard with the gun that he, he made out yeah. of soap. It's kind, oh, it's kind of a little embarrassing story about, uh, about crown point. But, uh, anyway, that, uh, uh, that jailhouse is there and you can go in and take, uh, take ghost tours. And, uh, that's, that's another thing. My wife and I did that anniversary. So that's kind of cool. Had, nice. We actually, Who's we, ghost we is actually in there? had a, uh, well, supposedly John Dillinger, we actually had like a Ghostbusters style person with us who had like, uh, you know, a recorder for electric voice, oh, electronic yeah, yeah. voice phenomenon and an energy detector that, you know, she said went off at, uh, at one point and everything. And we were there like around midnight. So it was a lot of fun. Right on. So, so uh, that's the would, kind of thing we John... got at Crown Point. Why would John Dillinger's ghost go back to Crown Point? I don't know. Why would you go back to jail? I don't. I, yeah, it I don't feels know. like he's got other well, places, better, better places to go. Well, you couldn't find a taxi. That's true. Well, because Mike stopped driving that country taxi. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I couldn't couldn't help him. Couldn't help. Maybe him that escape, man so. you picked up was the ghost of John Dillinger. He might have been. Well, I don't know. It's yeah. I, I would. Th- it would be fun to think that. But like I said, the police were mad at me for picking him up. So I know he was actually part of the real the real Maybe world. He was they actually. Were but the ghost idea, police. The idea that there are ghosts running around in Athens, Ohio, in their underwear at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> is uh, is pretty cool, and and would be par for the course for uh, for Athens. So. I love uh, it. <laughs> Michael Poor, this has been an absolute treat. Thank you so much for joining us uh, via Skype this morning. Thanks a lot for giving me the chance to come on. Yeah. So. Any last, you know, uh, folks, go check out the book, Reincarnation Blues, wherever you get fine books are sold. Uh, any final thoughts? Any last words of wisdom for our audience? I don't know if I have uh, words of wisdom. It's just go check out Hawaii if you get the chance. I've never been to Honolulu, but I have been to Maui, and it was just one of the. I just want to go back there all the time. Uh, that's where oh. I actually I succeeded in going surfing when I was in when I was in Fantastic. Maui. So, okay. Yes. So. Next time you're in Honolulu, we'll take you to our favorite Greek restaurant. Next time you're that's in Maui, <laughs> we'll come visit. All right, that sounds good. We'll go surfing. All right, <laughs> Michael Poor, ladies and gentlemen, go buy the book. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. All right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached Head is mad at black, got the boosters black to match Riding on a horse, ha, you can whip your Porsche I been in the valley, you ain't been up off that porch Now, nah, can't nobody feel me
Uruguay.